Welcome to What the Fish, a podcast where the fish guys at the Field Museum in Chicago talk about marine life, new and crazy species, natural history news, and fish. Who are the fish guys? We have Dr. Leo Smith, head of fishes, who loves him some Scooby Snacks. Hello, Beth. Dr. Matt Davis, postdoc and the master of the universe. Hello. Dr. Eric Algren, consultant for fishes and the claw master. Hi. And today's special guest is Caleb McMahon, doctoral candidate at LSU, and he is smarter than the average bear. Hello. And I am Beth Sanzenbacher, your host and the princess of power. Today we're going to talk about invasive species. So who are these aliens and where are they coming from? There was a story in the news this week. I think it came up on the Yahoo uh, News website, but then it was it was picked up on CNN of uh, some strange fish appearing in an Illinois lake, not far from Chicago here. And the, uh, the, the thing the story stressed was that this was a very dangerous and wild fish that would chew off a man's testicles and he would bleed to death so that you had to be very careful and that this was a really dangerous type of uh, situation for an Illinois lake. So, now, now, maybe the fish experts can weigh in about the testicle-chewing so, invasive well, fish. Well, hold on. So there's a fish that, that looks for, for men's bits. Apparently, he likes, yeah. They, they particularly like to chew on that. No, in the wild, this fish eats fruits and nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote this article? It was awesome. It was, <laughs> on, um, it, was in, it was on Yahoo News originally, and then it was on CNN this morning. Apparently. So the, okay, on, so on this TV. fish this fish does not eat men's testicles. No, this, the fish that they were talking about was a paku, which is actually a close relative of a piranha. And these particular fish are predominantly vegetarian, so they eat falling fruits and nuts and vegetation, and they have large kind of. I don't know. They're not scraping teeth, but they they do look somewhat similar to human teeth. Like instead of piranhas having sharp serrated teeth, they basically have these large, like square. They're kind of like molars or incisors yeah. or something. I mean, they're yeah, like big about. crushing teeth. So you know, if by chance one of them were to accidentally bite somebody's testicles, it could crush them. <laughs> But, but that this all comes from we had discussed this earlier. This this there was some sort of isolated report of in Indonesia or somewhere where this where where is where is this yeah, fish these, from these, originally? These it doesn't belong in not, Illinois. No, these fish don't belong in Illinois or Indonesia. So if they were in Indonesia, they were also an invasive species to Indonesia, which means somebody got them probably for the aquarium trade and dumped them. They're native to Central South America. Are they in Central America? I think they're just South America. They're just only a, South America. Just in the South Amazon. America. And so it, they're related to piranhas. They're slightly closer to silver dollars that a lot of people have in the aquarium trade. Just to sort of put these in perspective, they are called pakus. There's actually several paku species in the aquarium trade, too, but they're larger. They do look menacing. They're delicious to eat. Um, but they're not, although they probably have been introduced all over the world, which is how you get these reports out of Indonesia, they do not belong there. And they're not particularly, as as far as any of us know, they aren't really dangerous to men's reproductive organs. I've it's, actually it's not a, it's not their choice. To, I've swam with some humongous ones, and I didn't have a problem. But your organs, <laughs> but I didn't have like no, but like I fish. was I was in a swim bodysuit, so I was 
<laughs> I was enclosed. So it's pretty hard to confuse that with fruit. So we'd have to be looking at a particularly dumb fish. The, the one thing that should be pointed out is the Paku in Illinois is not... It's not likely that they will survive here. They're, as they're a tropical fish, they'll probably freeze this winter. That being said, they are introduced throughout at least Texas, if not other parts of the United States. And it's a fairly consistent every year to a story comes out about a fish being caught with human teeth. And, it, and then first it'll be described as a piranha with human teeth. And then it'll come to realize that what it is is a paku. I mean, this happens constantly. This is like a drum roll. Yeah. Like every year we have, these are introduced to the United States and people freak out. And every time I facepalm a little bit, when I see like the article with the title, Fish Found with Human Mouth, and it's just like, oh no, not again. <laughs> but yet you still describe them as having human-like teeth. Well, no, I just, it's only because of the way we were talking about the article. Like like normal human teeth or like Gary Busey type teeth, like big chiclets. Uh, they look like, like big, chiclets. Yeah. Yeah. They look like chiclets. Big white stony looking teeth yeah yeah neat but these are invasive though because why because just because they're not they're not indigenous that makes them invasive or right yeah and we have a long tradition of accidental and intentional releasing of fish throughout the in the non-native areas which is I suppose, the definition of invasive species. Let's move well, on to uh, an invasive that is very close to home here in Chicago, um, and that gets a lot of news, and that's the Asian carp. And then it's actually at the Taste of Chicago. Um, they made and gave for free uh, Asian carp burgers out to try to get people to eat it and to like it because there's all there's always stigma against like new fish uh-huh. like oh that's, that's one gross. reason to go to taste I haven't thought um, I've never even heard about that they're doing that this year they're doing it this year oh I'd like to try disgusting. that disgusting well I don't know is it good and it's very good see in Louisiana they're introduced they're make it all the way down to the Mississippi River and right in Baton Rouge where I am you can go out on the river in a in a smaller channel and if you're using an electrofishing boat which we sometimes do for collecting fish and you can shock the water and just you see blankets of carp jumping everywhere um, so they're all over the place but I've had there was a push at one point in Louisiana for trying to uh, encourage folks to eat carp and uh, I was at some meeting and that was one of the food choices they had and it was actually pretty good yeah, I've heard it's very good. It's a, I hear it's really bony. It's hard to separate the meat from the bones. I've and heard so that, but I, I, I've also talked to people who said that it's not a problem in preparing it, and this was filet. And it doesn't seem like it should be any different than any carp. Right. I mean, it's not. It's a little bit different shape. To, and they, they eat them in Asia, where they're native to, all the time. We yeah. actually we actually export them from here in the United States back to Asia for them to eat them. Because there's a demand for it. Matt's shaking his head as if he would not try carp. <laughs> no, I can't imagine a fish I want to eat less than a carp. It's like right. eating a giant goldfish. It's just like, no. Like a koi carp? Yeah, I just yeah. don't want, no. It's like an just, ornamental fish. What's it, well, what's it taste like? Fish. <laughs> like chicken? Generic kind of fish. Oh. Well, of course, in Louisiana, we put seasoning all over it, so it tastes right. so it awesome. Tastes, <laughs> tastes better. So, tell me about like so the Asian carp. Why is it? Why is it so invasive? Or well, like, it, why is everybody it, so? Because China is, you know, China's habitat is very similar to the United States. That's why it's why it does well here. So, it breeds more aggressively than our local species, or uh, does it reproduce in larger numbers? Or it's more it, just something that you know. 
the particular ecosystems in North America were evolving without them. And then when you introduce something that didn't belong there or hadn't been in that system for such a long period of time, it so if we took some a, kind of havoc, like it moves into the niche of some other fish or like it starts competing with other fishes for resources, whether it's food or like spawning localities or just any kind of habitat in general. So if we took like an American coho salmon or something and introduced it to China, it would have the same kind of like mirror. Yeah, they wouldn't like that there. either. Yeah. Or it would just die out. I mean, like when you yeah. introduce something, it either disappears or it thrives or very rare is it that something just sort of barely hangs on. Yeah. In my experience. Interesting. Yeah. So, but they're all, they're worried about it getting to Lake Michigan because it says that, you know, they always say it's going to cost millions of dollars to the fishing industry. Sure, so. but the fishing industry is all invasive species. Well, not all, but the, the salmon that are native to Lake Michigan aren't native either. And really? we don't seem to have any problem with that. So they're just worried about keeping a particular kind of fish yeah. and not replacing it with this other fish. Well, I think Matt and I at least would agree that we'd rather eat salmon than. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm sure they can sell salmon for a lot more money than carp. Right. You know, they they don't want things competing with salmon's resources. Like, they want the salmon populations to grow and thrive. They don't want other things moving in. It's just like, you can only have so many populations of things in a single space at any given time. It's like, you wouldn't want to all of a sudden have, like, an army of chimpanzees in your house. They start competing with you. Like, (laughs) that's not not what you want. You know what I mean? Like, that would be like... I agree. Yeah. If it was, like, video game competition or something, I think I could beat them at at video games. I would not want an army of chimpanzees. Yeah, if somebody took some, like, chimpanzees from, like, Africa and they just dropped them in your house, that's like... No, but that's an invasive, that would be like an invasive species. You would not like that. And it's like the same for fish. Like why does, you know, if you were living in a stream and somebody just dumped a bunch of gigantic carp. You got to remember, like Lake Michigan is like a big bowl. So it's got some coast that has one habitat. It's got an open water habitat. And these things are going to be competing with just a handful of things. It's not a a coral reef where you can sort of separate out into a million different niches. Well, and from a from a riverine perspective, and say the Mississippi River, one of the concerns for competition with carp are that they're voracious feeders and they eat uh, feed on zooplankton. And one of the concerns is that they're eating tons of zooplankton, the food that uh, larval sunfishes and a lot of the fishes you find in the Mississippi River feed on. And so there's some concern that there could be some out, some competition, a lot of competition between these carps, which grow fast, reproduce well, and eat a lot. Uh, with our native jar- juveniles of our native fishes, right? So they're right. eating what the juveniles of everything else would be eating because they're eating right. that much. They're sort of filter feeding like the way right. a whale does. So and they, they get humongous. Yeah. All right. So the Asian carp is a you know it's not just one species that's going to come in and maybe upset like you know champs would come into our house they would just upset us they wouldn't upset like the beetles or the spiders in your house or might, anything like know. this they might upset your dog they might upset your dog <laughs> but they're not going to anyway. they're not going to upset <laughs> the other biota in your house ecosystem where the asian carp is uh, much more threatening to several species instead of just maybe one or two or three different species is that right, true? and they're not necessarily going to wreck the environment. Is that right? I mean, the the, the lake will be about the same if, if they escape into the lake. They may our, the sunfish population may go down, the lake perch population may go down, or uh, uh, might be a problem with fishing. But it's not going to. The question is, it's the hard lake to, is not going to get real dirty. Or you can't, it's hard to that. predict those because those are domino effects. It's like once you stop pushing on one species and you start causing a decline in this, like you have no idea what the effects could be. Like it's a total mm-hmm. domino effect. Like you right. could end up with a real problem. And it could be a problem in the rivers, and it could be a problem in Lake Michigan, and then 
Lake Erie or something, all of a sudden could be fine with it. I mean, there's classic examples of Great Lakes fishes being introduced in other parts, of the Great Lakes of Africa fishes being introduced in other parts of the world with problems. So you have the Nile perch is like the sort of the, I don't know, the show the showgirl of, <laughs> of invasive fishes. The shogun. Of great. And so that fish was from, I don't know if the ones that were introduced into Lake uh, Victoria were the ones from Lake Tanganyika, but there are Nile perches in the that are in Lake Tanganyika. I think the Nile perch proper was, that they introduced was probably from the rivers near uh, Lake Victoria. But when you introduce this one fish that they thought would be good for eating for locals as well as the sort of Europeans that were sort of moving into the area, they, they wanted this larger, more delicious, more angling, more fighty fish. They introduced it and it wiped out, you know, we don't really know, but somewhere between hundreds and, you know, some people have estimated upwards of a thousand cichlids have been driven to extinction by the introduction of a fish that's in a lake sort of around the corner, sort of like our Great Lakes in Africa, that also has cichlids in it. There was no reason to suspect that it was going to go crazy in there, but and it created a horrendous uh, domino effect. So not only did this the Nile perch get introduced, start feeding on and wiping out the cichlids, but then as the people, the locals were collecting them, they would fish them, and because it's a bigger, oilier fish, instead of just drying them to eat them, they would cook them. And so to cook them, they would cut down the trees and plants around there to start fires and then have more coastline to cook these things on and then that would that would cause the, the runoff to go more into the lake and then then the lake got over polluted and then somehow water hyacinth got in you know were able to take off because the water was polluted and it just like created this horrendous snowball effect all because somebody wanted to eat Nile perch so they could be on like river monsters now and that's that's one point too that can actually affect entire sis- river systems are for instance, with uh, another introduced species, uh, tilapia, which um, are introduced all over the world. Because they're, they're good to eat. Because people, people yeah, eat grow them fast. the aquaculture industries introduce them in a lot of places. Um, for instance, in rivers in Central America where they've been introduced for that reason, um, you'll find areas where the, these, these, for, these, are, these are actually types of cichlids from Africa, but um, these tilapia, they reproduce fast, they grow fast, and they feed on vegetation and things, and they, they like to root around in the mud, and so they just make the water incredibly turbid, which affects the sunlight getting in the water, which affects plant growth and all these other things. So you can completely alter the entire system, and the fishes and everything, invertebrates, everything from that introduced species. And we and for some of these, I don't think we really know what the long-term effects will be from some of them. Yeah, the, no, invasive species, I mean, another local non-fish thing is the zebra mussel has sort of cleaned up to some mm-hmm. degree, the lakes and things like that. They used to be full of plankton and algae and things like that. And now that's cleaned up. It's sort of nicer, but that's the food for the babies of everything else. And what are the long-term implications of that? Or how can you even possibly get the zebra mussel out of the lakes? I was going to say that uh, uh, since the zebra mussel was introduced into Lake Michigan, well, how, how long ago was that? About 10 years ago? The lake, the, the, when you go and swim at the lake, it's, the lake is cleaner, the water is cleaner and clearer than I've ever seen it before. And I don't know if it's related to the zebra mussel or anything, but, uh, uh, the lake used to be almost completely opaque. You could wade in up to your waist and you couldn't see down to the bottom. Now you can go in up to your shoulders and see clear on down to the sand. And the thing that's missing is life. Yeah. It was soupy and cloudy and ugly. It's more pool-like life. now. Yeah. People like it better. Um, so, but that, 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 all that's going to do is take alter, it alters the ecology. Whether that's good or bad is 
you know, on the eye of the beholder. Like, yeah. Eric likes it better than he's <laughs> a baby Lepomus or sunfish like it less. And with up here looking at the worrying about the, the jumping carp, the silver carp, there are um, other species of carp introduced into the U.S. too, hmm. at least about five. And you can go lower in the Mississippi River and you can get three or four species at a site. Yeah, I don't even know what native... Uh, it's hard in the United States and probably Western Europe, and for that matter, probably Eastern Europe too. It's it's really hard for an ichthyologist to know where what was actually native anywhere mm. because our records, humans have been messing with things for so long, longer than collections exist. So we have historical collections of, of sunfishes, black basses, largemouth basses, all those things that in some cases... We are the closest things we have now to where the native populations of those fishes are, but we don't actually, we can't prove that. But they're certainly better than they are now because everyone introduces largemouth bass so, all over the world. So our fish of the week this week, um, it is in a very tall jar um, of alcohol. Um, it's kind of, let's see if I was going to describe it. It does kind of look like it has the head of an eel or a snake. It has a long body um, with a dorsal fin that kind of tracks all the way down. Um, and it has spots. So it kind of has like a snake pattern on its side. Yeah, so it's yeah. kind of tan with, with darker spots. And this is the... Blotches. Blotches. That's a better way to say that. Like a python. Like a python that's going to eat you. Like snakes on a plane, but it's a fish. Um, and this is the snakehead fish. The northern snakehead. The northern snakehead fish. Um, so what can you guys tell us about this? So these various snakeheads have been introduced all over the world. So where was this one caught? So this one was caught in Illinois. Yeah, this one was caught like right Michigan. Right by the museum. Right by the museum in Burnham Harbor. And they, you know, there was a famous case maybe 10 years ago where they're, they found them in a lake right next to the National uh, NSA, National Security Advisory, National, whatever NSA stands for, the government spooks. And they, you know, so they were, they, the problem with them is that they walk on land, they devour everything that fits in their mouth, they seem to survive everywhere, they can move from lakes to rivers, and they were mostly brought to the United States for Asian markets, so people like to eat them. They like to eat them fresh and alive. So they, you know, in Chinatown in New York, I used to go there. I don't know all the time to, and they we could get them live. I was looking for other fishes, but they were there. And then after the incident in Maryland, they started banning their introduction into the food markets. But they're still available in the pet trade, and I'm not positive that that's legal. What they scared the spies? Well, they just called attention to them because they are voracious predators, and they'll move from one lake to another lake. So they're capable of self-distributing themselves, like from one system to another system. So if, if you're trying to keep them like pocketed to one area, it's hard to contain them. So it wasn't a problem until some NSA agent with like an earpiece in and his sunglasses. He was walking along the road and he saw one of these things slithering along, freaked out. I think it just made the news, and it's uh, you know yeah. nobody oh, okay. nobody nobody changes nobody affects policy without a reason, and that was yeah. It's always it'd been a problem, just like the Paku thing. It's like, uh, right. it's like you know somebody found it in Illinois, and they highlighted that someone in Indonesia was injured at some point in time. But it's not as if this is the first time anyone's ever found a Paku or anyone's actually in danger. It just makes for a compelling story. I gotcha. Right. I mean, the USGS researchers in Tallahassee, Florida, have been were studying it for years, if not a decade or more, prior to the NSA incident. And then yeah. there was, like, bad 
B-movie science fiction, like snakehead attack type movies showing up on the sci-fi channel. It, you know, it just, now there's, there's yeah. definitely a mythology around the snakehead as a vicious fish. And there was, there was also a time, so they're native to uh, Southeast Asia mainland, and so I think some go even sort of maybe into like Wallachia and things like that. But they're, and they're related to kissing fish, kissing garamis, and all the rest of the garamis in the pet trade, so they can breathe air. And there was, I'm not sure which country it was, but the, one of the Southeast Asian countries, uh, an emperor was sort of giving these as gifts to other countries for a while. So in the case of Madagascar, these have taken over Madagascar, often wiping out the native populations there. And the introduction, you know, so they were given as a gift to the king of Madagascar. He put them in his local pond, like a, you know, an ornamental pond in his on his land. And then they escaped from there because they can walk on land. And they went over and they taken over most of the eastern half, at least the northeastern half of Madagascar's freshwaters. You find them everywhere. But they're tasty? That's what they claim. I've never, have you guys ever had a snakehead? No, I've seen them like when I was in Vietnam, they were selling them. People were eat, you know, eating them at markets, but I've never actually tried one. Have you tried one, Caleb? No. Mm-mm. One of the, <laughs> one of the few things Caleb one has few, eaten yeah, that we've mentioned today. Things I haven't eaten. One of the reports I've uh, heard about snakehead in the U.S. was there was a, I forget which state it was in, but a, an aquaculturist had several ponds with different fishes in them, and he had snakehead in one pond and was he needed to get rid of them. And so, you know, he drained the pond and put the snakehead, like, by the bank, you know, because they would, like most fishes, they would just die, but they just crawled over into the next pond. <laughs> and recent uh, work I've heard from people working on snakehead, it seems their distribution in the U.S. is rapidly expanding they're making it south into the mississippi river in areas very quickly no i mean the other big invasive that's kind of like them is the swamp eels that have sort of taken over in various parts of the everglades i mean if these got into the everglades it would be that much worse you know these are big you know the fish this fish is probably two feet long at this point um it's probably about as big as i've ever seen them but it was just randomly caught right off the right off our you know the water right off of the field museum now that's an invasive species mess the everglades yeah, everything in the Everglades. Is, is, is there a place yeah. that's not an invasive species mess? Alaska. What's that highest, driest <laughs> part of Argentina? <laughs> what's that? The, what's the, the whatever desert? The oh, Camo, the Camo uh, Desert. Yes. The driest, highest. Maybe like the yes. Darien Cloud Forest, okay. like places where people can't go, <laughs> <laughs> like to drop off other things. Panama has probably got no shortage of Ugh. of uh, lionfish. Oh no, they have big events to try and get rid of yeah, lionfish. So, yeah. So. It's that's a terrestrial bias there. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's true. That's a freshwater bias. That's not a marine. I remember working in the Everglades. Speaking of the Everglades, I remember working there, hiking around, helping someone from the research division there. They were tracking Burmese pythons, and we're hiking along, and all of a sudden, there's a, a 14 foot python coiled up. Duh. It's just it's very, so bizarre to walk around. I think we should kill snakes everywhere, not in basic. I love, I love <laughs> snakes. Aww, so snakes oh. are the best. I think we should kill all snakes. I'd be the, cut I'm that like, out of the interview. <laughs> I'm like St. Patrick. There's a more theoretical question. I mean, what what really is an invasive? I mean, because I mean, I guess with fish they're harder to move but you know like birds move things move around is it is it because humans are doing it i mean because more or less throughout time i'm sure different species have jumped river channel open came to a new lake wreaked havoc i mean this isn't something 
that we exclusively do or are responsible for. I mean, so, I mean... I mean, one example one could use is, so, the Europeans, I don't know, emigrated? I don't know what Columbus did, but came out, like, <laughs> explored... Came on over? <laughs> explored the, the sort of the quote-unquote new world and brought all these diseases with them. Mm-hmm. That phenomenon is, we would not call it invasive species issue. Like, so, if, if birds were bringing diseases over, we would never call it that. So, it is literally... the transplantation of a metazoan by a human, I would say. Yeah. Like a multicellular I would thing. agree because there's a natural way for organisms to migrate or disperse themselves to new environments, maybe expand their ranges. And of course this happens over the course of evolutionary history a lot. Like organisms have like expanded where they live to another area. And when those things happen, obviously things come into contact that weren't in contact before, but those are like natural causes. Yeah. Um, Is that the difference if, between exotic and invasive? That's, uh, those are synonyms. They're yeah. synonyms. So they're for me. Yeah, me too. But the thing is, like, for an invasive thing, like, it's more of a, I want something to fish in this river, so I'm going to start populating it with game fish. Like, for fishes, we're causing invasives all the time purposefully, either to fish them commercially or for eating. Right. Are probably the two main reasons people do it on purpose. And then on accident, somebody just buys something interesting in a pet trade and they just dump it in a lake when it gets too big. Um, Which is probably he, what the Paku is. Yeah. If people don't want to kill the fish that they've had as a baby, but it's too big for their tank, so they release it into the wild. So do, does the speed or the amount we have affect any anything? Because I guess if, if, if like, a, a new species comes into an area, it might not come in. It might come in slowly. And I mean, and if we want to, like, fish... Well, it's like Leo mentioned we'll earlier. a whole bunch of them in at once. Some, of, go, yeah, some of them are are going to do better than others or thrive there. And people that are dumping things for game fish, that stuff is usually controlled by fisheries... Um, or by some aspect of government or something like it's not usually just done randomly like people do studies to see how they can keep the populations up and like how to how to handle that people should keep their testicles out of the water that'll keep the population (laughs) down well no I mean there's a a non-fish example in in the Florida Keys right now they want to introduce uh, dengue fever resistant mosquitoes of the same species into the Florida Keys to hope that it drives you know the genes of that Population would alter such that dengue fever can't get into the into the keys or it can't get established in the keys. And so, is that the right thing to do? Is that where where do we stand on that? What well, what other mutations do those have? People have done that with fish too, right? Like they've introduced mosquito fishes all over the place to try to cull mosquito populations down. Um, you, you can know, in many. It yeah, it works because. Would they, you call that an invasive species? If you introduce it, it thrives and everybody likes the outcome. It's or? still an invasive species. It's, it's still just, an invasive species. Yeah. And if you stop and think about it, like, you know, think five million years from now, we've moved all these fish all over the place. Like, we've, on some level, impacted how fish are going to evolve just by moving these things around. Because, like, things that weren't even on a continent that they were on before are now there. And left unchecked, like, say, if we all disappeared off the face of the Earth and you check back on this planet ten million years from now, who knows what would happen? And then, if, you know, are those then invasives then? Yeah. I mean, is this, there is a small portion proportion of things that are moved around by other things that is natural and that's how you know we get excited about that from a biogeography perspective if mm-hmm. something's stuck to a bird's foot and then is flown across some major body of but we, yeah we usually land. see those things in like small islands or something though like where right. it's not usually like from asia to the middle of missouri like we we have caused mass dispersal of things all over the globe where before it might have been like something caught onto a 
a piece of a tree that floated from one little island to another island in the Philippines or Rats, something. Rats, cats, yeah, rabbits, all those things. Uh, tree snakes, tree snakes, yeah, cane toads. Um, oh, cane toads. But yeah, all the ones we the ones we've focused on so far have been sort of terrestrial freshwater examples. Mm-hmm. But the, the we we've neglected to talk about the ocean, which has other issues. I was just going to bring that up to one of my favorites, lionfish. Right, so there's a lot of different, most marine invasives, I believe, no, uh, most marine invasives, including the zebra mussel, which is freshwater, are actually ballast water movement. So a boat takes on water mm-hmm. in its dock or home area, or maybe it's in the, you know, I don't know, maybe they dump it and pick up some new water in the middle of the ocean. I don't know how that works. There's rules on that now. And then that's to keep a certain level of buoyancy in the water. And then they go, you know, they take off from, I don't know, like Liberia. And then they land in San Diego and dump their Liberian water all over San Diego Bay. And then fish get introduced there. So there's lots and lots of examples of this. And it's not just fish. It's mussels. It's clams. It's probably crustaceans. It's a giant disaster (laughs) all over the place. Um, In the case of the lionfish, there was, for a long time, there was speculation that this was Hurricane Andrew or one of the hurricanes that knocked out lionfish from aquarium pools in Florida that then got out. I think they've pretty much disproven the hurricane hypothesis, but there's no question that it was from the ornamental fish trade. So the lionfishes are native to, depending on which species, they're in the Indo-Pacific. They go anywhere all over the Indo-Pacific. One species gets as far uh, east as Hawaii, but they're, they're not native to the Atlantic coast. And so they got introduced somewhere in North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, probably Florida, where the aquarium facilities are. And they overtook um, a large proportion, actually, of the Atlantic seaboard. So starting in 2000, we started catching them up. I was in New York at the time. We started catching them in New York. They've gotten as far north as Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and as far south as Columbia and South America. And they're a large venomous predator that has no native things that feed on them because they're because of the venom they're brightly warning colored so things that have any sense at all or stay away from them uh, the only thing we have going for them though is that they are delicious so if humans aren't afraid of the venoms we can actually eat them but their populations are so large now that that's not even really we can't overfish them not and, even us and they've made it all the way down to central america yeah no all the way to there in south america everywhere yeah. Really, and this is That's that crazy. this is that that big ornamental fish you see in fish tanks. It's all striped and brown and white, and got like long fingers on it, and and bit like Leslie Nielsen in the Naked Gun, yes. or Naked Gun Two on the nose. Yeah, no, there it's that, and it's a you know it's a large fish, and you know there's been some some reports that in on the beaches in Colombia it's now the most common fish out on the beach, which is a big really? venomous horrendous disaster. I mean, this thing is a reef fish; it shouldn't be on a on a sandy beach. No, but. they're scary. I don't like when I when I dive and I see them because they just kind of float and they stare you down. It's like I dare you to touch me, and you're like, yeah. Well, how venomous are they? Are they, are they really strongly <laughs> venomous? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, you you've know, been we stung? don't. You've been you've been stung. I by? have been stung not by the one that's been introduced, but by a different lionfish. I've been stung by the fuzzy dwarf. Um, wiped out all the hair on my hand and probably, I don't know, ten square inches of my flesh destroyed by the by the wow. venom. Wow, and the lionfish can do this. The, the the one that was introduced can do similar damage. Probably more because like lo- local tissue destruction sort local of thing. Local destruction. It has cardiac effects. Ooh, it's, it's a it's a bastard. 
It's a little oh, bastard. It's yeah. a mean little bastard. It is. You <laughs> see it, you want to swim away. I, re- I remember I was like surrounded by like four of them and I was totally freaking out. I was like, ah, they were ganging up on me. It's going to hurt so much. And I don't some like country, it. Some places are, for instance, in Panama, in Central America, they have uh, events each year. And I think some of the places in the Caribbean islands have tried to have encouraged the public to participate in these events for having a day or weekend where they're, I don't know if it'll have any impact, but they try to, it's nice to see them trying to fish them and to catch them and try and. They're making cookbooks for them and things like that. Fish. Because it's important to remember that their venom is not poisonous. So if you cook them, it breaks down the venom and you can eat them. Is the venom in a, is it just in the spines? It's in the dorsal spines. So there's 12, 13 of them in that species. There's three anal spines and then there's one pelvic spine on each side of the fish. So if you take the spines out, does that remove the venom? Like you can cut them at the base. The the spine the venom gland runs along the entire not the entire length, but most of the length of the spines and they're free on those. So if you look at them they're sort of like fingers rather than like a like a frog claw, like a paddle, like a bird, like a duck foot or something. Um, and they, they kind of move them in a sinus pattern if you look at it from above. And they're, it's moving all over just in case you were to make sure that you step on it. It does not have a venom delivery system like a snake where it's got a hollow tube. You actually have to physically sort of puncture the spine and rupture this venom gland, which is sort of like a sausage laying across a, against like a baseball bat. And so you actually break that open like a water balloon. And if you do that, that's when you get nailed. What about uh, the uh, sharks that they've been seeing recently up on the East Coast? There was a great white shark that was chasing some some guy in a kayak. Would you call that an invasive species? Oh, that's man, not like normally, normally found is, there, right? No, because those things, I think, I just have large... I mean, some sharks have really large migration patterns or they distribute themselves pretty broadly. And I, you know, as far as I'm aware... A lot of people spend a lot of time researching the movement of sharks, and even some of it's still a bit of a mystery, um, just how far they go or why they go the lengths of distance that they do go. But it's amazing. I mean, they've they satellite-tagged uh, some sharks, and it's, I mean, they swim thousands and thousands of miles. So the whole ocean is their natural habitat. They, they might turn up anywhere. Yeah, but there is definitely something there. As far as I know, there is some association with climate change. Like, they, they definitely track with, like, changes in climate and the ranges can be affected by that in right. any given year. They're somewhat, they're more, you know, they, they get up to like a San Francisco Bay sort of climate. They're not, you're not going to find it in Alaska yeah. for the most part. But as it gets warmer, you're going to get them more towards the poles. Which explains probably some of the surprise of people seeing it there. Just there are more currents, more records in other areas, but it could easily be there. So that's more of an example of like a natural kind of a dispersal or a range expansion that over time, like over millions of years, and like maybe if climate changes a little bit here or there, you could end up with populations in places where they weren't, you know, 10,000 years ago. But that's mm-hmm. kind of a natural extent, like expansion of, of an animal's range. And it gets more complicated than that because you have situations where if you're in the northern hemisphere, the ocean currents are in a clockwise pattern. So if you're in... The Atlantic coast in, in North America, the water's being warmed along the equator, and then be, so the currents are above and below the equator. So the water will come up and it'll warm up along the equator, go past Florida as it moves up. And as you get closer to the end of the fall, Rhode Island's water is much warmer than it was in the fall than it was in the spring. In the case of the Pacific Ocean, it's the reverse. Everything is getting, at least on the U.S. coast, is coming down from Alaska down and cooling off. And so you have a lot of fish that have an anti tropical distribution where you'll find them north of 
say, Cal- in Cal- like California, they'll be north of Los Angeles and they'll be south of some part of South America. But if you the currents change because of, you know, if you have a really bad El Nino, you could theoretically alter the currents in the eastern half of the Pacific Ocean and the fish could actually swim sort of naturally, but sort of unnaturally. And, you know, continents moved and all these things. You can have, this is how we end up with patterns of biogeography that exist that are natural. But in this case, it's sort of an unnatural phenomenon where we're altering the temperature. So just because a fish is in a place where you wouldn't necessarily expect to see it doesn't mean that you'd call it invasive. Right. So there was a, there's a Antarctic ice fishes, the notothenioids. Um, one of them, they're all around Antarctica. And then I think it was maybe eight, 10 years, maybe more, maybe 10, 12 years ago, a couple of researchers found one off of Greenland. And so mm. it was a big debate as to whether was this a ballast water introduction where one, some fish was picked up in the pole here and dropped off in the other pole. Some people speculated that it was frozen and someone just threw it off. Like they had collect, caught it, they had thrown it off the boat and someone caught it dead. And so it was brought up dead in a trawl. That you know, there were also there's a remarkable amount of speculation about this. So are we invasive? Yeah, are humans oh, yeah. an invasive species well, to North a, America? Did another human I mean, take a human and drop him somewhere? <laughs> yeah. all, yes. Yeah. We, we all go piggyback. It depends. Like across <laughs> the Siberian Strait. Did like an alien oh, ship come and drop us on? No. Somewhere, and then we just start wandering what if we, off. What if we did it by elephant? If we, we rode on the back of an elephant, elephant yeah. Maybe like Animal. on the back of a dire yeah. wolf through, like from from Asia to North America on the back of dire wolves and woolly right. mammoths. Yeah, one of those giant tree slots or whatever they had the, the mega mega uh, mammals uh, yeah. thing that we've got. We just mega climbed mammals. up in their fur and hung on <laughs> as they dispersed on like a migration pattern. <laughs> then yeah, maybe. Uh, Riding dolphins, yeah, maybe a dolphin invaded. Maybe dugongs. I feel like we're just (laughs) describing bad '80s rock, you know, videos right now. Yeah, but maybe there's something to them. Harnessing a maybe we didn't get everywhere on our own. Maybe we did get help from something. Maybe it was Prometheus. I'm sure we did. I was thinking if if one of us is an '80s video, it was probably Caleb. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Caleb. All right. Oh, I like your hair, Caleb. It's pretty. They're just jealous. That's not, that's not, it's beautiful hair. (laughs) All right, and we're done. If you want to agree, disagree, or want to ask what the fish, tweet us your question at FM underscore what the fish. So long, and thanks for all the fish. (laughs) 